It's really quite astonishing, Lord, that we're in November. It, uh, it really is. The older we get, the faster life seems to move. And what, uh, when we were kids, life seemed to go by very slowly, and Thanksgiving and Christmas would come. Um, well, they, they just rarely came. And there used to be a gap between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and it took forever to get to Christmas. But now that we're older, it just has been accelerated. And we're coming into um, Thanksgiving, a holiday that uh, seems to be forgotten these days because Christmas stuff has been up for several weeks. But we do not want to be like the, uh, the children of Israel who wandered and saw your provision for 40 years. You took care of everything for them. The, 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 the soles on their sandals didn't even wear out. You gave them exactly what they needed it, what they needed at the moment when they needed it. But, uh, but they were complainers and they were whiners and they were grumblers. And uh, we, we have to really watch ourselves not to fall into that. So as we get into these <clears throat> next couple of months, things are going to get real busy. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of traffic, a lot of parties, a lot of get-togethers. Would you enable us to be thankful? Would you enable us to keep our perspective and to keep our equilibrium so that we could... Uh, savor not only the turkey, but that we could savor your goodness, your mercy, your provisions for us. Others have more than we do, uh, but a lot of others have less. So don't let us lose perspective. We are grateful for what you have done for us. We, we don't say that because we're supposed to. We don't say it because it's uh, expected in church. We just say it because it's true. You brought us into existence. None of us asked to exist. You just did that. You gave us physical life. Uh, when we were in our mother's womb, you gave us aptitudes and abilities and gifts. You have um, sustained us and carried us so that here we are this evening. We look around at our lives and if, if we're really wise, we add up the remarkable blessings we've enjoyed from your hand. And because you brought us to know your son and he has forgiven our sin and enabled us to be in right relationship with you, Father, the best is yet to come. Uh, life is hard and life is difficult. It's, it's not easy. We, we don't walk around whining. But it's, uh, it's, it's full of all kinds of things that can... Uh, that can discourage us and um, demotivate us. Um, keeping joy can be a challenge at times. But help us never to quit fighting. Help us, Lord, to, uh, to never get so overwhelmed that we throw in the towel. thinking about this man this past weekend who has uh, been a real faithful member of a, of a church in our community that teaches the scriptures and involved in small group ministry and involved in men's ministry and he just went ahead and pulled the trigger and took his life this weekend. What a great sadness. For his wife and for his kids, three kids still at home to deal with that. 
Sometimes, Lord, we can just lose all perspective. We, we all look like we're okay tonight here. We all look like we're competent and capable and on top of things. But not everybody is. Don't let us lose our balance. Don't let us lose our equilibrium. If we're hurting, if we're desperate, don't let us keep that to ourselves. We can't live this Christian life by ourselves. We just can't do it. We weren't designed to live it by ourselves. Thank you for life and for all the good things you've given to us. We appreciate them. We don't worship them. We worship you. Help us to keep that perspective. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This past weekend, I was in Northern California. Specifically, I was in the area that is now known as the wine country, um, the Napa Valley. I remember the Napa Valley was just the Napa Valley when I was a kid. But now people come from all over the world to go to the Napa Valley and take the tours of the, uh, of the wineries. And you can always tell the people who are on the tours of the wineries because their cars swerve back and forth <laughs> on the road in front of you. Um, that's why uh, many of them get on buses. That's probably a wise move. I, I, was, in, uh, I was speaking at uh, Redwood Alliance Camp, which is in the Redwoods. It's, uh, it's to the west of Napa, over towards the Pacific Ocean, only probably 15 minutes away from, uh, uh, from the ocean. And there's a grove of redwoods just west of Santa Rosa, about halfway over to, uh, to the coast. It's just gorgeous country up there. And uh, I had a great time uh, doing a men's conference up there at Alliance Redwoods and uh, uh, been there several times. Um, there's a little town called Occidental. And uh, Occidental is, I mean, I mean, it's just tiny. But uh, it's, a, it's a historic town. It was started by the Italian families that founded the little town of Occidental. Uh, Italian families that were... Um, uh, uh, had vineyards and had been there for, you know, gosh, 140 years. Uh, but Occidental, as is true of a lot of Northern California, has undergone a change. You still have the Italian family restaurants, but you also got a real strong counterculture, 60-ish, hippie. It's still there. And In fact, the highway that goes through Occidental... This is classic. It's called the Bohemian Highway. And when I got in there Friday afternoon, right across from where I was staying, they had, you know, a lot of little towns have farmer's markets. Well, they had an organic farmer's market. And I had some time. I mean, so I thought, you know, I'm going to walk over there and see what's going on. And as soon as I walked across the street, it was like I walked into a time warp. It was just the 60s all over again. I grew up in... Northern California, in the 60s, during all that stuff. And I remember when Haight-Ashbury started. I, we only lived a half hour south of there. And, um, you know, there's a song, if you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. Some of you guys remember that song. If you do, you're old and you have arthritis. I mean, it was a long time ago. But, but you know, the whole world changed in the 60s on what happened there. At UC Berkeley, UC Berserkly, it started with a free speech movement, a guy named Mario Savio. All kinds of things happened out of that. And then the Haight-Ashbury thing. Well, going into that organic farmer's market, I mean, it was a time warp. Uh, it was a bunch of old hippies. And they had their VW vans pulled in there with their organic spinach and their organic rutabagas and and, and their bumper stickers, you know, I, I make, that's right, make love, not war. <laughs> yeah. I saw one of the old posters, you do your thing, and I'll do mine. <laughs> and if by chance we find each other, it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Groovy. Groovy. 
That's actually called, that's actually called the Gestalt Prayer, written by Fritz Perls, the great theologian of Big Sur. But he's still big out there. Uh, resist authority was another bumper sticker I saw. I mean, it was a time warp. You know? I mean, it was just 60s all over again. David, I think it was David Crosby, you know, the rock singer, Crosby, Stills, Nash. He said, if, if, if you say you remember the 60s, you're a liar. <laughs> now, for him, that's true. Because that sucker's been high for 40 years. He didn't know where he is. But it was just a time warp. And, and you know, I walked around for about 10, 15 minutes, and then I was, I was driving Later that afternoon, I was listening to talk radio coming out of San Francisco, and I just couldn't listen to it too long because it's a different world up there. It's just, and I was raised up there. So I thought, you know what I need to do? I need to read the Ten Commandments. Just a kind of, I just, I just needed to read the Ten Commandments just to get a little truth, just to get a little reality. Just because you say, well, what does the Ten Commandments have to do with it? Well, I, back, in, back when all that happened in the 60s, and it swept across the country, up until that time, and you've heard this before, but up until that time, when, when, when you would look at America and the history of America, you could say with pretty much absolute certainty that 98%, and it was probably higher, of Americans believed in something called moral absolutes. Uh, perhaps they weren't Christians, but uh, even if people weren't Christians, they had a Bible in their house. Probably had a Bible on their coffee table. Maybe they never opened it, but they had a Bible. Everybody had a Bible. Everybody, everybody knew the Golden Rule. Everybody knew the Ten Commandments. Uh, there was no problem with posting the Ten Commandments in schools because that's just kind of how we live. Because we 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 believed in this country in something called moral absolutes. Uh, when you believe in moral absolutes, number one. You believe that there is a God and that he was the absolute ruler. And then you believe that because there was a God, that this God um, gave absolute truth. But you see, we live in a culture today, and you hear the term postmodernism. Postmodernism, the basic idea there is that there is no absolute truth. And see, this all came out of the 60s. So there is a God. And, and there is absolute truth. And when Moses came down from the mountain, from Sinai, God gave him truth and God gave him laws and God gave him principles that were for all cultures and all time. And that was the basis of what has been called Western civilization, which is why in the 60s, universities quit teaching Western civilization. You see... Um, a part of Western civilization is that um, if you have a civilization, it's got to be based on something. Every once in a while, we'll hear during elections, and there are different you know, arguments being made uh, about a law, a proposed law, and you'll hear this. Someone will say, well, by that law, you're just trying to legislate morality. But see, the fact of the matter is every law is legislating somebody's morality. The question is, whose morality is going to be legislated. In the early days of America, if you were uh, going to uh, be an attorney, uh, you didn't go to law school, uh, you would get a, a set of Blackstone's commentaries. And Blackstone's commentaries w w was your guide to the law. And it would give you the law, and then it would give you the scripture verses that were the basis of the law, you see. That's why so many people wanted to come to this country, because there was uh, liberty and there was uh, justice and there was freedom, just like there is in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Actually, you don't find those things in Saudi Arabia. Why don't you find those things? Because they get the wrong foundation. See, liberty and justice and freedom and democracy, all that stuff, it comes from somewhere, and it comes from the Word of God. And when you read the founding documents of this country, and you guys know this, when you read the founders and you read their statements and you read it in context, 
they were Bible men. Even the few that were deists appealed to the Bible because you see your laws and your morality has got to come from somewhere. You just don't snatch it out of thin air. They believed in something called moral absolutes. But in the 60s, this new thing came in, which gave uh, life, if you will, a strange term, it it gave momentum to this whole movement that I saw these ancient hippies trying to keep alive this past weekend. Uh, Legalize marijuana. You know, same-sex marriage. In other words, anything goes. Why? Because in the 60s, this new thing came, new idea came in called moral relativism. And moral relativism teaches there is no absolute God, therefore there is no absolute truth, therefore you can do anything that you want. It's not the first time this has appeared in history. In, in the book of Judges in the Old Testament, Israel was such, at a place of such spiritual decline. Throughout the book of Judges, you'll read the phrase, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's moral relativism. <clears throat> Tonight, I want to start with the Ten Commandments, which are in Exodus chapter 20. And since this isn't a public school, we're free to read the Word of God here. Exodus chapter 20, then God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the only true God. There's the first commandment. Secondly, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Uh, Part of that whole movement of the 60s and and, uh, part of the whole thing coming out of the hippie movement is the extreme environmentalism movement where they worship the creation rather than the creator. We all want clean rivers and clean lakes. I mean, of course we do. Where did that come from? God gave it to us. And by the way, God gave us dominion over the earth. Oh, and by the way, we're more important than the animals. Did you know that? Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. Your father takes care of them. He says, are they not as important as you are? That's not what Jesus said. That's what Greenpeace says. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus, in talking about the birds of the air, and then speaking of us, he says, are you not more important than they? And anybody with half a brain in their head would say, of course we're more important than birds because we're human beings made in the image of God. But we continue to go insane. The further we get away from God and the further we get away from God's word, the more insane we become. So the NBA season is coming around. Started last night. And I have been told they have a new basketball. Have you heard about this? And, and I've just caught this second, third hand. But I've been told that one of the reasons they have a new basketball, why would they change basketballs after all these years? Because of the animal rights movement. That's, that's just unbelievable. And so the commissioner of basketball, was this guy's name, Stern, has dictated that there's to be a new kind of basketball. But I bet you he's still got leather seats in his car. (laughs) Yeah. We don't make idols and we don't worship the creation. We have dominion over the creation. So I say go drill in Alaska. And get that oil because we've been given dominion. And we're not going to spill it, but we need it. John Kerry needs it. (laughs) Gore needs it for his private jet. Number five. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. I've never met someone who hits their wife who didn't come from a home where their father didn't hit their wife. Things tend to be passed down unless Christ breaks into our lives. Seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. So probably today you heard someone say, God damn it, whatever it was, which is really a horrific thing to say, but they'll just say it. They'll take God's name in vain. God's name is not to be taken lightly. And, and I think a lot of times we will say, oh, my God, and we don't mean it. We don't mean it at all. It's just a phrase. No, that's taking his name in vain. To me, one of the greatest proofs that Jesus is the Son of God is that all these unbelievers walk around saying, Jesus Christ. They don't say Buddha, Buddha. They don't say Allah, Allah, or Confucius, Confucius. They say Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's God, and they're taking his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God's not into 24-7. And we could discuss the Sabbath, but basically God says you need to take a... Whatever day you choose, you need to take a day off. I didn't wire you to go 24-7. Uh, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So there's a concept, honor your father and mother. Think about the 60s, all that's happened, drug use, kids, all that stuff. You know, just amazing. Family breakdown. It's very sad, isn't it? What does God say? Honor your father and your mother. Yeah, but they're not perfect. Doesn't matter. You honor them. Uh you shall not murder. Well, I mean, how, how can you say that? Well, God says it. You shall not murder. We murder all the time in this country. How, how many babies were murdered in this town today in hospitals? Because, um, because back, how many years ago now, you had a reprobate, godless, wicked, inferior judge who was trying to make his mark in history. So in an unbelievable power grab, and he got his cronies in their black robes, they suddenly said, they announced that it's okay to uh, take the lives of babies in their mother's womb. And we all know it isn't okay. We all know that. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Perjury is wrong. Dismantling someone's reputation is wrong just to do it. Uh, number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So after being in Northern California this weekend and kind of immersing myself in the 60s, hippie, more relativistic, I actually heard a guy on talk radio talking about a right-wing fundamentalist who would not take his daughter to get an abortion. And he was just scathing this guy. The hubris, the self-righteousness. The, I, I couldn't listen. I, turned, I, I just couldn't listen to it. So if you're going to San Francisco, you're an idiot. <laughs> and I used to live there, I can say that. Um, what does this have to do with anything? Well, here's what it has to do. We are, uh, we're doing a series that we're calling Snapshots of Stupid. And may I just say that when we get away from what God says, we get stupid real fast. We get incredibly stupid. We get incredibly proud, and we get incredibly vain. And then we become incredibly insane, just insane. We lose our minds, and our lives begin to unravel, and our lives begin to fall apart. Uh, resist authority, the bumper sticker says. Well, when you resist authority, ultimately you're going to be resisting God. Because God is the ultimate authority. Oh, and by the way, this book is the book above all, every book. This book has authority over you, and it has authority over me, and it has authority over nations, all nations. It has authority over every religion, all religions. 
So I got kind of worked up being out there this weekend. Um, now, out of all these commandments, the one I want to use to springboard us into our study night is the 10th commandment. The very last one, which says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, his female servants, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So what's the heart of that? You shall not covet. Uh, it's, it's an interesting concept because the whole issue of coveting really is at the root of the other nine commandments. Uh, the commandment in verse 10 speaks of an attitude of the heart. And when coveting is in the heart, it can lead to any of the other nine commandments being broken. In fact, a statement could be made. When the other nine commandments are broken, at the root is covetousness in the heart. Um, is it coveting? Really? You know, in, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said that you cannot love God and mammon. So what's mammon? Uh, you cannot love God and money. You cannot love God and wealth. Now, you say, but I got to have money. Sure you do. But Jesus says you can't love it. You either love God or you love wealth. There is a fine line there. And let me, let me read something to you from a guy named Herbert Schlossberg. Aren't you glad that's not your name? <laughs> he wrote a book a long time ago called Idols for Destruction. Brilliant man. He says, those whose loyalty is to mammon or wealth quite naturally cast anxious eyes on the property belonging to others. And that is why the apostle called covetousness a form of idolatry in Colossians 3.5. This vice, covetousness, is a strong desire to have the possession of others. So disastrous is it that the last of the Ten Commandments prohibits it. The only prohibition in the second table, he means in the last five commandments, that concerns an attitude rather than an action. That's very, that's very important. Thou shall not murder, thou shall not steal, thou shall not commit adultery. Those are actions. Thou shall not covet is an attitude. It often, meaning covetousness, it often accompanies envy, which is a discontent or a resentment of another's good fortune. Envy precedes covetousness and is itself the object of severe biblical censure. The thing about covetousness, and, and what is covetousness? It's, it's seeing that someone else has something that you don't have and you're deeply desiring to have it. Uh, it's interesting to me that covetousness would be in the Ten Commandments and that it really is, it really is an attitude and it's an action of the heart. Uh, covetousness is something that is very subtle. Covetousness is something that tends to go under the radar. Uh, covetousness is something, see, adultery we can recognize. That's easy. Uh, lying we can recognize. That's easy. Uh, stealing, we can recognize. You either steal or you don't steal. You either go into store and you shoplift it or you pay for it. That's real easy. But covetousness is a little more slippery. You see, it kind of flies under the radar, doesn't it? Because it's an attitude. Um, in 1918, there was an epidemic that swept America eventually swept the whole world. Now, how many of our men died in the Vietnam War? It was over 50,000. Uh, in 1918, 500,000 Americans died in 12 months. 
10 times the amount of the entire Vietnam War. You talk about devastation. There wasn't a family in America that was untouched by this epidemic. What I'm referring to is the great influenza epidemic of 1918. Uh, My grandmother died a few years ago at the age of 101. She had two brothers who died in that epidemic of influenza. One boy was up working in the mountains of Colorado and was staying in a remote cabin, and, uh, and they didn't hear from him, and they didn't hear from him. So his brother went up, and he pounded on the door, and he said, don't come in, I've got, I've got the flu. And his brother went in to help him, and they both died. Hardly a family in America was untouched. 50, not 50,000, 500,000 Americans in one year died from influenza. Went around the world in millions And we're not here tonight worried about influenza. We're not worried about dying from the flu. But there's something we ought to be worried about. Because there is an epidemic, and it's an epidemic that strikes Christians. It's not influenza, it's it's affluenza. Affluenza is a very slow-moving spiritual virus. You know the interesting thing? Uh, Influenza hit in 1918. It was a horrible epidemic. Prior to that, There have been other epidemics. There was the bubonic plague that hit in the Middle Ages. Somewhere, historians say, between a third to a half of Europe was wiped out by the bubonic plague. And back then, people didn't know what caused it. They didn't. Now we know that it was a disease of rats. There was a little flea that attached itself to rats. And and in the crowded, infested conditions that people lived in, the fleas, these rat fleas would be everywhere, and they were the carriers of the, pl- of the, of the plague. And, and, and entire villages, entire families would be wiped out. We don't know a lot about epidemics in this day and age. We're not worried about the plague tonight. We're not worried about uh, influenza. But we ought to be worried about affluenza. And you say, oh, I'm not wealthy. Well, you don't have to be rich to get affluenza. Uh, it can still hit you. See, the thing about affluenza, you don't get it from rats. You get it from the rat race. (laughs) And that's what we're in, is the rat race. I want to show you tonight. And see, what do you mean affluenza? Affluenza is a slow-moving spiritual virus that gets into the heart of people, Christian people and distorts their thinking and distorts their judgment and causes them to make decisions that are incredibly harmful to them and to those around them that they dearly love. We're going to look at a snapshot tonight of a guy named Gehazi or Gehazi. I like to call him Gehazi because he got real hazy. In his thinking. If you have your Bible, I'd like, like you to get like it to uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. The thing about Gehazi was, um, you know, he's one of the more obscure guys in the Old Testament. Uh, you would know his boss. His boss was Elisha. Got to make a distinction between Elijah and Elisha. Elijah came first. His assistant, his associate prophet was Elisha. When Elijah died, but he didn't die, two men in the Bible who didn't die, Elijah and, okay, you guys get a free Starbucks later, Um, Elijah and Enoch didn't die. Elijah was taken up uh, in in a chariot. Uh, His assistant, Elisha, asked that a double mantle, a double anointing, be given to him. And Elijah said, if you see me go up in the chariot, God's going to give that to you. Well, that's what happened. So Elisha was now the prophet. His assistant is Gehazi. And in 2 Kings chapter 5, we've got an account of a man who was, quote, unquote, very involved in ministry, Gehazi. But under the surface, in the recesses of his heart, was very, very far from God. On the surface, he looked good. On the surface, he looked fine. Would have signed a doctrinal statement. Uh, Had had no problem with doctrinal issues. And and if you recall, our umbrella verse in this whole study has been 
Uh, 1 Timothy 4.16, where Paul said to Timothy, pay close attention to your life and to your doctrine. Here's another guy whose doctrine appears to be solid. But what Gehazi didn't do was pay attention to his life. He didn't pay attention to his heart. And this is what brought him down, and this is what caused him to do something that uh, was incredibly stupid. And there was a process involved. It all began when a general from a foreign country sought out Elisha in order to be healed of leprosy. That's 2 Kings verse 5. Now Naaman, I'm in verse 1, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man also was a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were, the, were with the prophet who was in Samaria. Then he would cure him of, of, of his leprosy. In other words, this little girl says, gosh, I wish he could go see Elisha. Because Elisha could cure him of this, of, of this terrible disease, which is just eating him alive. The thing about leprosy is, leprosy, as you know, affects the skin and you begin to lose your extremities. Uh, leprosy is a disease that attacks the nerves. And so someone who has leprosy, uh, they, they don't have feeling in their fingers. They don't have feeling in their hands as the disease progresses. They don't have uh, feeling in their toes or in their feet. That's why someone with uh, Leprosy in a third world country can be walking into the village barefooted and step on a piece of glass and just keep walking for another mile or two. Doesn't notice the blood until he gets into the village and someone says, hey, your, your foot's bleeding pretty badly. And he looks down and he sees it. But he didn't know until somebody told him because he's got leprosy and his nerve endings are dead. Therefore, he doesn't feel anything. That's part of leprosy. That's why lepers lose their fingers in their hands. They'll grab you know, uh, a pan, and they don't know it's hot because they can't feel it, and the flesh will drip off onto the, plan, onto the pan. So this is what Naaman had. So long story short, he winds up going to see Elisha. And when he sees Elisha, Elisha tells him to do something that, that kind of bothered him. In verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. Well, that kind of hacked Naaman off. That's not what he was expecting. And he said, hey, hey, we got rivers where I come from that are a lot cleaner than the Jordan. Well, the water wasn't the issue. The water isn't what's going to heal you. Obedience to the God of Israel is what will heal you. So his buddies kind of knock some sense into him, and he relents, and he winds up dipping seven times in the Jordan. And on the seventh dip, when he came out of the water... He was instantaneously healed of leprosy. So out of gratitude for what has happened to him, he wants to give some gifts. He wants to give money to the prophet in order to thank him for this wonderful miracle that has occurred in his life. Um, in verse 16, he attempts to make the offer, but uh, in verse 15 and 16, but uh, Elisha refuses. He says, I'll take nothing. Uh, He urged him to take it, but he refused. Well, then in verse 19, Elisha says to him, so go in peace. And basically what Elisha said to him was, you go back to your homeland and you serve the God, the one true God, you serve him in your country. And the man said that he would. Elisha says, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. Now we're going to get into it, verse 20. Now catch this. But Gehazi The servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, this is all going to happen in his head. Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean, by not receiving from his hands what he brought, the silver, the robes, the beautiful goods that he offered. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Now, you need to understand, right here, we've got covetousness in this guy's heart. And you say, well, that's not real clear to me. It will be in just a minute from the context. Uh, Gehazi, Gehazi, what he had going on here, he, he uh, he was having a significant temptation towards affluenza. That's the thing about affluenza. 
It can eat you alive and you don't even know you've got it. Um, when you say affluenza, people say, you know, I'm not wealthy, I'm not rich. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be wealthy. You just have to be discontent with what you've got. There's something else out there. There's something else out there, and, and if you could just get that, there's something that's really big. There's something that's really, really important. And in your, in your way of thinking, until you get that, life is not complete, and you are not at a place in life where you want to be until you can get what this other person has. That's what's going on here with this guy. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And Gehazi, verse 22, says, All is well. Now I want you to note, I want you to note what begins to happen. Remember we said back in the Ten Commandments that thou shalt not covet is an attitude of the heart that really can lead to the breaking of the other commandments? Because, see, the root issue is the condition of the heart. That's the root issue in Christianity. Uh, there's this concept that floats around in our culture. And once again, it comes from moral relativism. And we hear it all the time. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of people that have degrees from highfalutin universities believe this. And they're absolute fools. And what I'm referring to is this idea that man is basically good. What is it going to take to figure out that man is not basically good? Even if you reject the scriptures, man is basically good. Really. We hear that all the time. So you don't need to discipline children. Because children are basically good. No, they're not. No, they're not. Do you remember how much time you had to invest in each of your children, teaching them very carefully how to lie? It's a, it's a terrible world out there. And there are times when you need to lie. There are times when you tell a half-truth. There are times when you must be deceptive. So you've spent hours working with your kids on this. No, you didn't. They came out, they came out of the womb lying. They were liars before they ever opened their mouths. Why? Because of our hearts. Jeremiah says the heart is desperately sick and wicked. And see, when you start with that premise, then you, I mean, then you do all kinds of stupid things. You think, I mean, we just see it. I mean, here's go. You think you can negotiate with a terrorist. No, you can't. You think if you could just sit down with a Wahhabi Islamic fascist, you could reason with them. No, you can't. They'll take, they'll take a dull knife and slowly cut your head off. Why? Because their hearts are not good. None of us, our hearts are good. Yet we hear this all the time. Man is basically good. No, no. God tells us the condition of our heart. Can, can, can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can, can the leopard change his spots? Then you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil, the scripture says. So what do we say? Man is basically good. Anytime there's a problem, you just need to look inside yourself. Look deep inside yourself. That's, 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 that's the world's solution. You look inside yourself. And as you've heard me say, looking inside yourself is like going scuba diving in a septic tank. That's what's inside yourself. The heart is desperately sick and wicked. Now, now, because our hearts are desperately sick and wicked, and, and see, Jesus talked about this in Matthew 15. Jesus talked about what defiles a man is what comes out of it. I mean, it's out of the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in your heart's going to come out. This is what's going to happen with Gehazi here. Because Gehazi now, see, and, and what's going to happen is he's going to tell a series of lies. Now, is he breaking a commandment and lying? Yes. But the lying is not the root. The root for the lies is covetousness. This guy has something that he wants. 
So the root cause, see, the lying is a symptom. The root cause is covetousness and envy in his heart. Now watch what happens as he deals with Naaman, this man who had just been miraculously healed. He said, uh, Naaman says, is all well? He said, all is well. My master has sent me. Okay. Did his master send him? No. Now see, as he was pursuing Naaman, he's putting his story together. He's putting it together. So he starts off, my master has sent me. Well, that's not true. That's a lie. So he just broke the commandment. But that's not a problem for him. Um, So then he goes on. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets. I'll just interject something here. They had a college, we, we would call it day. They had a school for these young men to be taught by the older men. They call it the School of the Prophets. So these, these two students have come down from the School of the Prophets. Elisha wanted me to tell you that these two young men have showed up. First of all, Elijah didn't tell him. And secondly, there weren't two young men who had shown up. Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. That's a lie. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. A talent of silver was not a coin. It it basically was a sack or a bag of silver that could be carried by a large man or usually they'd put it even on on uh, on a donkey. That's a lot of silver, a talent of silver. Uh, so in other words, we, we've got a need. We've got these. My master said, hey, you know, I changed my mind. We've got these two young guys, and they need uh, two changes of clothes, and we need, you know, the silver. Okay? So Naaman said, hey, be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him. Now, that's interesting to me. He urged him. Why would he have to urge him? I can see Naaman saying, oh, oh, well, no, no, no. I just I feel terrible even asking. I mean, can't you just see this? Why would he have to urge him? Because he's putting on this veneer. He's putting on this facade that he really doesn't want it. But see, he does want it. So Naaman urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of the servants, and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house, in his house. And he sent them in a way and departed. Now, here's the thing. This guy is just a poor preacher guy. Suddenly, he's got two bags of silver. He's got two, you know, Armani suit kind of thing deals, whoever wears those things. I mean, this guy's decked out. But the problem is, he can't do anything with it. Because as soon as he does, he's, gonna, he's caught. He's sort of like Achan. You remember Achan? They told Achan, you know, you don't take anything when we take this city. And Achan took it, and he hid it. Because you can't wear it. Dumb. So he hides it in his house. Verse 25. But he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. This guy's on a roll. This guy's Clintonian. (laughs) Your servant went nowhere. Twenty-six. Then he said to him. Then Elisha said to him, "Man, this is this is powerful. Did my heart, did not my heart go with you, when the man turned from his chariot to meet you?" Hey, hey, th- 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 this is a guy, Elisha, who could read the thoughts of the king of Aram when he was in his own bedchamber. You got another event in the scriptures where the king of Aram is plotting ambushes against Israel. And uh, that was Elisha, wasn't it? It was Elisha. And and every time they go to do an ambush, Israel's army is waiting for them and ambushes them. And the king of Aram gets really hacked off, and he says, hey, which one of you guys 
is leaking to the New York Times? Which one of you guys is leaking to the Jerusalem Post? And they say, oh, king live forever, which is a good thing to say to a king. None of us. But the man of God reads your thoughts when you're in your bedchamber. He said, who is it? Well, it's Elisha. Well, let's go get that sucker. Where is he? He's in Dothan. So they go, let's go get him. And the next morning, Dothan's, uh, Dothan, uh, Elisha's servant goes out to get the Jerusalem post, and he looks up, and around the mountains, he's surrounded by the king of Aram and his army. And he goes and gets Elisha, and Elisha comes out and sees, and the guy says, hey, hey. And Elisha looks, and he, goes, he says, don't worry, there are more of us than there are of them. And, and, and the servant's looking and counting and... And then Elisha prayed. He said, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And his eyes were opened, and he saw the myriads and myriads and myriads of angelic beings ready to do warfare. And immediately the army of the king of Aram were blinded and taken into the presence of the leader of Israel. So this guy, Elisha, by the power of God, could see things nobody else could see. He knew exactly what was going on. Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? I want to stop right there. Because that is a telescopic view of what was going on in the heart of Gehazi when he was thinking, I'm going to go to Naaman and I'm going to get silver, and I'm going to get these robes. See, Elisha, by the Spirit of God, was able to read the motives of his heart. And what was going on in his heart? He just told it. He nailed him. He said, man, what you were thinking about, you were going to get the money, and you were going to receive clothes, and then with the money, you're going to buy olive groves, and vineyards, and sheep, and oxen, and male and female servants. In other words, you want to be a wealthy man with a large estate, and you're willing to do anything to get it. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. There's indication from 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 4, that Gehazi repented. Because if you look at that, apparently, apparently, and it doesn't say it clearly, but we ascertain that perhaps in repentance he was healed from this. I'll let you look at that later. Let me give you, uh, let me give you four symptoms of covetousness. Let me give you four symptoms of affluenza, which, which can hit any of us because we live in such a fabulous culture with such fabulous wealth. And see, this stuff is so subtle. It's so very, very subtle. It's a root issue that can cause us to do very, very foolish things. Number one, his coveting, his coveting made him a liar. As we pointed out, the coveting was the root issue in his heart. He saw what he didn't have, and he was willing to subtly and deceptively do anything that he needed to do in order to get it. Uh, James Patterson and Peter Kim set out to take the moral pulse of America in the 1990s using state-of-the-art research techniques that go way beyond superficial five-minute polls. They conducted the largest survey of private morals ever undertaken in any country to unearth and quantify the personal ethics, values, and beliefs of our time. The results, which vary widely from region to region, are nothing less than astonishing. Patterson and Kim found 2,000 men and women who agreed to answer 1,800 questions in complete anonymity. One of their findings considered personal truthfulness. Here's what they found. Lying has become an integral part of the American culture, a trait of the American character. We lie and don't even think about it. We lie for no reason. The writer Vance Bourgelet once said, like most men, I tell a hundred lies a day. The writers say that's about right, and the people we lie to most are those closest to us. Why do we lie? 
Oftentimes we lie because we covet something. We covet them thinking of us in a certain way when we're not that way. Interesting, isn't it, how subtle covetous can be? (sighs) Number two, his coveting made him use people. You know, as, as I read the scriptures, here's kind of the sense that I get about people and about things. What the Lord wants to do in our lives. Hey, and listen, we got to have money, and we got to have a house, and you got to have a vehicle and all that. And many of us in this room have been greatly, greatly blessed by God. Jesus said you can't love God on money. Um, God will often test us in this area. He'll test our hearts. Um, there are a lot of people that love Christ with all their heart, and they have been blessed financially because God has tested them, and they can be trusted with the money. They don't love the money. They love Christ. They give money. They invest money for the kingdom. I I think the principle is this. When the Lord is at work in our lives, what he wants to do in our lives is get us to a point of maturity where we love people and we use things. But see, when covetousness is in our heart and affluenza is in our heart, here's what happens. What happens is we begin to love things and we use people. It's just the reverse. Number two, his coveting made him use people. He used them. He used Naaman. Manipulated the guy, deceived the guy, lied to the guy. Robert Raines wrote down this prayer. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people, ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own sake. Lord, I turn to you sometimes to get the inside track and obtain special favors. Your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanctions for my ambitions, your blank checks for whatever I want. I mentioned to you before George Mueller, the great man of faith that ran all the orphanages in England by just absolute faith in God, would never ask anybody for money. His biography, the title is, A Million and a Half Answers to Prayer. And in contrast to this, George Mueller would say, he would say that the hardest thing about prayer is getting yourself in a position where you prefer the will of God. You prefer it. Sure, we've all got the way we'd like it to go. We've got our preferences. Lord, if you do this, if you... But where you prefer the will of God, there's a, that's a safe place. It's a hard place to get to. Number three, his coveting made him love things. Robert Jacoby, former president of Sunrise Savings and Loan, which, by the way, is now insolvent, as many savings and loans experienced. Jacoby stated, I have a pretty wife, a Jaguar, a Mercedes, a beautiful home, and a yacht. I want a Ferrari, a bigger house, and a bigger boat. At least he was honest. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said that the constant desire to have still more things and still a better life and the struggle to obtain obtain them imprints many Western faces with worry and even depression, even though it is customary to conceal such feelings. See, this Gehazi guy, he used people and he loved things. When Christ is the center of our lives, we love people and we use things. And the things we have, we're grateful for them and we know where they came from. Deuteronomy 8.18, it is he who gives you the power to make wealth. What have we received that you have not been given? Or do I have that reversed? What have you been given that you have not received? That's how it goes. I got dyslexic there for a minute. Number four, his coveting robbed him of what he already enjoyed. And what was it that he enjoyed? His health. But to teach this guy a lesson... God took the leprosy that had been taken from Naaman and put it on him. George Gilder wrote something that very, very, is very poignant. Listen to this. Men lust, but they, but they know not what for. 
They wander and lose track of the goal. They fight and compete, but they forget the prize. They spread seed, but spurn the seasons of growth. They chase power and glory and miss the meaning of life. Uh, we've, we, we are all susceptible to this, guys. Um, we, we've, we, we've all learned hard lessons when it comes to these things, and we're continuing to learn lessons. I have a friend who pastors in Michigan, and a couple years ago we were spending some time together, and he had just returned from India. And he started telling me about a family that he spent an evening with, and as he told me, and this guy is, this, this guy is not given to a lot of emotion. He's, just, he's a real analytical guy, real steady guy. But as he told me about this family, he began to get tears in his eyes. This man uh, was a pastor, former Hindu, in a very, very remote area of rural India. And they had invited my friend to have a meal with them one evening. Um, he said, Steve, I, I, I walked up to this mud hut, just a shack, not much not much bigger than our guest bathroom. And I walked into this mud shack, and here's the husband and the wife. Here's their daughter, eight, nine, uh, who's been blind all of her life. Their son, 10, 11, uh, gross deformities in his arms and legs. Um, They were, the, the wife was preparing the, the meal uh, on a, just an, uh, <coughs> over an open fire of cow dung, dried cow dung. That's all they had to make the fire. And before they served the meal, the husband asked if we would bow our heads and pray. And he said, what struck me about his prayer was that he was so grateful to God for what he and his family had been given. He said, Steve, there was a, there was a joy in that family. There was love. There was thankfulness. There was praise. There was gratitude. And, and they lived in the most deplorable conditions you can imagine. And they, both, and they had two kids that just had horrible, horrible health problems. And, and he said, I realized that they had something that so often is lacking in my home, even as a pastor. My house is 20 times bigger than theirs. But, but, but you know what, what, I, what I found in that home that oftentimes is missing in mine? I found contentment. Contentment. And it ministered to me. The scripture doesn't say a whole lot about success. It has a whole lot to say about contentment. And you know, guys, what robs us of our contentment and causes, you know what's interesting? When you lose your contentment, you can begin to get a heart that becomes a coveting heart. Isn't that interesting? So we've got to learn contentment. And it's hard because around here, we're always seeing people that have more. Here's a tip. When you see people that have more, and, and see, here's the enemy of contentment. You know what kills contentment? Comparison. Comparison kills contentment. And we all compare. So here's the deal. If you're going to compare, and you can't help but compare to people who have more, you're going to do that. But don't stop there. When you compare your life to someone who has more, make sure that you then take the time to compare your life with someone who has less. And that'll tend to get rid of the covetousness and put back the contentment. It's an issue of the heart. And it can make us really stupid if we don't pay close attention. 
So we bow before you, Lord Jesus. Uh, I, I scare myself to death, and I know these guys do too. We know what we're capable of. Protect us from stupid thinking. Protect us from so deeply desiring what someone else has. I, 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 it just came to my mind the, the man who was in a suburb of Dallas this past weekend riding with the police who went to the two calls, two suicide calls, one after another. And I remember him telling me, Lord, just hours ago, they pulled up in both cases to two of the biggest homes he'd ever seen in his entire life. Actually, Lord, what he said was, we pulled up in front of two of the largest houses I've ever seen in my life. And in both cases, someone had tried to take their life a woman in her 40s, and then a 16-year-old boy. They had houses, but they didn't have homes. Help us to learn to be content. In Jesus' name we pray.